WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. There are so many different aspects that go into development and reproductive health. For example, these cells have to evolve into different tissues and organs. To tell us more about this, we're talking to Cameron Bennett about her research. Hi, Cameron. Thanks for joining us today. May you please tell us about yourself and your research? Hi. First off, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to everyone about my research. My name is Cameron Bennett, and I'm a research graduate from Michigan State University. My research is on the genes that have an important role in early embryonic development and how they work and how the way they evolved influences how they work. Welcome, Cameron, and thanks for joining us this morning. One statement that caught my attention there was how you mentioned what you're studying is something that hatches. Could you clarify a little bit about what organism you're studying when it comes to this genetic molecular biology? Yeah, when I talk about hatching, I actually work with a really cool organism called zebrafish. Their scientific name is called Danny Dioraria, and they're a special type of fish in this family called teleost fish. I really enjoy working with them because they're great for studying development. They're really small. They're about the size of your thumb, an adult person's thumb. And their embryos, so when they're developing their eggs, are clear, actually. So when you're doing studies, you can literally look at them develop through their entire course of the time that the cell is first fertilized all the way up to the time they're ready to hatch. So it's really, really cool to kind of watch them develop. And then this model is really great for my particular type of research. We work with neurocrest cell development. And one of the biggest ways we can kind of track where these cells go is based off of pigmentation. And these fish have, they're not called zebrafish for no reason. They have stripes that run down them. And a lot of my experiments will mess up that stripe. So we use this word called phenotype. So how the gene shows up when we mess with it, what's the result? So the same way someone might have red hair or blue eyes, the fish will have different looks to them. One of the most common traits that we see with my experimental fish will be either the broken stripes or red belly. So the fish normally are silver with like a dark black or dark blue stripes. But when we change genes around, they'll either have broken stripes. So it'll look like little dots or dashes. And then their bellies will be red instead of silver. It's really fascinating how you're able to do these types of manipulations and see the changes in the stripes and even the colors on these fish. Why are you interested in changing these genes that control these phenotypes whenever you're looking at embryonic development? We're really interested in this set of genes because from a big picture, these genes, the ones that are called endothelin family genes, they basically control the early stem cell development. So if I wanted to make a metaphor, it's kind of like the air traffic control for a group of planes and all of the planes, they're all like the same, but they're all going to different places. And then once they get there, they're going to become their own special type of cell. So the endothelin system of genes is the air traffic control that controls the planes of the neural crest cells. But we're really interested in this overarching because zebrafish, or at least that type of family of fish, have extra copies of these genes that like us land animals, including humans, don't have. So we're trying to understand what these extra copies do and what's the point of them because they have such an important role in these like heart tissues, jaw structures, like gut cells, and all these really important structures in the body. 
could there be something there that is important for the difference between creatures that live aquatically or creatures that live on land? So we're not totally sure yet, but we think it's a really interesting way to look at how these cell fate differences and the different type of tissues that occur before you're even born could play a role in how you're able to live either underwater or on land. It's interesting how you're trying to make these connections between aquatic animals and land animals. I wanted to ask if you could clarify a little bit more about what neurocrest cells are. Are the zebrafish the only ones that have these neurocrest cells, or are there other organisms as well that share these? Neurocrest cells are super cool because all vertebrates have them. So basically, if any organism has a spine, it's got neurocrest cells. Neurocrest cells um, are a specific type of embryonic cell. So they're really only there like in a really early development before you're usually they're born or hatched or however else that organism might come into the world. But they're cool because they're like stem cells and they can turn into dozens of different cell types, including heart cells, pigment cells. So like the color of your skin, hair, eyes, or in our case, stripe patterns on zebrafish, as well as neuronal cells. So like nerve cells, sensory neurons, the concept of like touch, sight. There are cells in the eyes that develop from neural crest cells and then squamous cells. So that's a special type of cell that forms like your skin or other layered tissues in the body. Yeah, it's really cool to see pictures of how neural crest cells will develop into different parts of the areas of the body. Very early on in the Sci-Files, we actually had an episode about how stem cells could affect cell fate in developmental biology. Whenever you're manipulating these genes, for example, to change the phenotype of these zebrafish, are you putting these cells like in a petri dish and then putting something in there to manipulate them? How does this work exactly in your experiment? I actually use a really cool technique called the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system. This technique actually won the Nobel Prize within the last year or so. And it's a relatively new technique where you use proteins that you inject into, at least in my case, we inject directly into the zebrafish embryos, like the single cell of the zebrafish, to change how the gene is expressed. So for our fish, I work with a technique or a type of CRISPR technique where I knock out the gene. So basically, I go in and I use this thing called a guide RNA that will go in and basically like cut out the target gene. So the gene of interest and in that fish, that gene area will no longer work. So then we can have fish that will grow up without like a functional copy of that gene. If we say, okay, what if I had this fish that doesn't have a functional copy of gene EDN3? We can inject using CRISPR a guide RNA that targets that gene. It'll cut it out. So then the fish, as it's developing, that gene can't really do anything. And then when it grows up, we see what the fish looks like or how it behaves without that gene. From past conversations I have with people, usually I'm familiar with CRISPR taking place with cell lines mostly. However, in your laboratory, are you working with cell lines directly or are you actually using zebrafish and influencing the kind of embryo development that they undergo? Yeah, in our lab, we actually work with the zebrafish. Our technique, as compared to like the cell lines that you mentioned before, we use a technique where it's in vivo or in life. So we actually work with whole zebrafish. When I inject into the single cell eggs, 
so right after they've been laid and then they grow up it takes about 48 hours for them to hatch into zebrafish larvae so they're really really little they're little tiny baby zebrafish they're about the size of a pencil eraser shaving and over the course of three months they grow into full-sized zebrafish Michigan State University has an awesome zebrafish facility where we can work with a wide variety of lines of our different live zebrafish. That's so cool. I imagine that these eggs are really small, though, so I'm kind of thinking of how people would try to patch a cell. How big are these eggs, and what is that experience whenever you're trying to inject them to do these manipulations? And also, how do you not confuse the fish while they're growing up? Oh my gosh, zebrafish eggs are tiny. For those of you at home who might have a ruler with you, each zebrafish egg is two millimeters in diameter. So they're kind of hard to work with because like I said before, they're clear and they're very small. So after they're laid, we use this really cool technique called micro-injections where you use a very, very, very small needle that actually has to be made of glass because it's hard to get metal needles that big. So it's a glass tube that we stretch out really fast and then we inject them underneath a microscope so we can see them clearly. And then as we're raising them to keep track of all the different zebrafish, they all stay in tanks that we assign a ID number with that is kept in a database. So we know, okay, this tank is this mutant that was born on this date to these parents injected by this person. And here's their common name and their scientific name. That sounds like so many zebrafish that you have to take care of. I cannot imagine having to keep a log of all of that. After the zebrafish have hatched, do you do any sort of internal studies of the zebrafish to see any other changes besides the phenotypic variations that would appear physically? Yeah, we do. Zebrafish develop pretty quickly in the world of organisms for research, but it takes months for them to reach adulthood. And during that time, they go through this process called metamorphosis. So their like pigmentation patterns will actually change. So if we need information quicker than that, we'll do genotyping. So we will collect a tissue sample from the fish and do all the prep work, send it off for sequencing, and then we get back a whole sequence of all the genes We send it off and then we get back the sequence of our area of interest. So in genetics, we have these different molecules, like each like building blocks, all of your genes. We usually call them by their acronyms, A, T, C, and G. So we'll get a whole list of A, T, Cs, and Gs. And then we have to go through that. And it's pretty painstaking to go through and map in our area of interest, where we think our gene is supposed to be, where our region that we were like aiming for to cut out is and then where the end block, like the bookends of that sequence are. So we can make sure that it's lined up to everything. And then we'll take that sequence and compare it to like a big database reference of what that fish's genome is supposed to look like. And then we can determine, okay, did our like gene knockout work and what kind of mutations did it make? I also recall that you said that you're studying the gene family of EDN. Why are you particularly interested in this family? And why is this gene family important? Yeah, I'm studying the EDN gene family, or EDN is actually short for endothelin genes. So these genes are really cool because, like I said earlier, they're kind of the air traffic control for for how our neural crest cells go off throughout the body and turn into what they're going to be when the fish is grown up. But our EDN genes are super cool because they're in our teleost fish, or in, in our fish, there is extra copies that are not present in any land, animals on land. So in like way, way, way back in time, the fish only had like four copies of the EDN genes, EDN1, EDN2, 
EDN3, and EDN4. In land animals, so like us, like your cat, like your dog, there's only three genes. So EDN1, EDN2, and EDN3. But in our modern teleos fish, like our zebrafish, we have six of these genes. One, EDN1 stays the same, but EDN2 and EDN3 both have two copies. We call those A and B. But our most interesting part is that in our modern fish, we have this gene called EDN4. Now, EDN4 is only in these modern teleos fish. They did not exist way back when, before the genome duplication. They don't exist in land animals. So we have no idea what it does, what it's there for. And that's been the big goal of our project, is to figure out what this gene does and how it relates to these other genes that have been duplicated over the past millions of years of evolution. I never knew that animals would carry copies of genes. I was always familiar with that fact that humans only have a single copy of them. When it comes to the work on your research on EDN4 specifically, does it have relationships with other gene families? Thanks. That's actually been the tricky part so far. We know from both our work and the work of other labs that also do neurocrest research that the endothelin 1 gene has an important role in craniofacial development. So that's going to be the bones and tissues in your head and face. So EDN1 is really, really important for jaw development, which is actually a key feature of modern tetrapods. So, you know, our four-limbed creatures, that's a really, really important feature across evolution. So we know EDN1 does that. EDN2 and 3, we see a lot with pigmentation. So when we knock those out of our fish and make those genes not work, we have our broken stripe phenotypes. So instead of our fish having their beautiful zebra stripes, they have little dots. With the other one, instead of our fish being nice silver bellies, they have red bellies. So you can actually see through and see all their intestines and stuff. And then when we make fish that have both of those genes knocked out, we have our red belly broken stripe phenotype, which ranges from broken stripes and red belly all the way to fish that are almost clear. And then you can see all their insides and it's pretty cool. But we haven't been able to figure out what four does yet. And that's been pretty confusing because when we have these fish that have non-functional mutations for both of the EDN2 genes, both of the EDN3 genes, and then also not working for four, we don't really see any difference. So that's been the pretty confusing part in the future, is trying to figure out how that EDN4 gene relates back to the other genes. There's a lot of theories in this range of research about how genome duplications work. And some of these ideas are maybe these extra copies maybe new genes, maybe they cover a portion of some other genes. So instead of one gene doing all the work, that work is covered by these two different genes, or maybe it doesn't do anything at all. So that's where the future lies with our research is to try to figure out what that gene does, since it doesn't seem to change anything in relation to the function of the other genes in this family. In molecular biology and genetics, whenever you have one gene, it's not just simple that one gene will control one thing. Everything is intertwined in multiple networks, and if you change the expression of a gene to be overexpressed or underexpressed, it can cause changes in so many other things. Whenever you're doing these changes with the EDN family, are you seeing any differences with other genes as well? That's been the interesting part so far, is that when we combine like this non-functional gene with the other genes in the endothelin family, we actually haven't been seeing any differences. That's going to be something in our future research, trying to understand how these combinations of no longer functioning genes impact each other at a more molecular level. 
But something that's really cool about this research is that as we're working to understand the function of our endothelin 4, EDN4 gene that we call our mystery gene, it's going to help us develop tools to understand gene function in other genes as well. It's interesting how the manipulation of this one gene can impact the expression of a particular phenotype and not any other physical characteristics that you know of so far. One thing I'm curious about is how did you get into the zebrafish research? What did you find really interesting about this in the first place? I actually first got into using zebrafish as a model organism and in general working with EvoDevo or Evolutionary Developmental Bio because in high school I watched this really cool documentary called Your Inner Fish looking at the research of this professor at University of Chicago named Dr. Neil Shubin and all about his discovery of the kind of missing link between aquatic organisms and land organisms. They've named the organism Tiptolic and I was super interested in how organisms develop from an evolutionary perspective. And when I got to Michigan State, I looked around for different labs that studied that. And I found Dr. Ingo Brosh's lab in the Department of Integrative Biology. And the rest is history. I've really enjoyed hearing about your research and how impactful it is. Whenever you're talking about it, though, you speak like if it's present tense, though you recently graduated. What are your plans for the future? Are you planning on continuing this research? Unfortunately, I am headed off into a bit of a different direction. After graduating Michigan State, I moved out to Colorado. I will be starting my PhD in molecular biology at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. So while I might not be doing this exact same research, I'm looking forward to hopefully joining a lab that continues to work with zebrafish in developmental biology. Still, a major congratulations are in order for your graduation, and another congrats for getting into your PhD program over in Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cameron, to talk to us about your work on understanding the genes related to the EDN gene family within zebrafish, and good luck with your new PhD starting this fall. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was awesome chatting to you guys about my research. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.